I'd like to have you turn to John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. Now we've been in chapter 3 now for a few weeks. Uh, There was a slight interruption of weeks here with Father's Day and July the 4th and uh, another week where we had a special guest from Teen Challenge, Pastor Albert. So it's been a while since we've been here. But John 3 began with a meeting between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had sought an audience with Jesus by night to ask him questions as to who he was. Jesus was singularly focused on one thing. And if we could sum it up, we could say that Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, it isn't about your riches. It isn't about your respectability. It isn't about your rituals. It isn't your reputation that gets you anywhere, especially to heaven. It's about being born again. For unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what we find in this particular chapter leads up to this great text. Now I know that in the last study that we had in John, we ended with this particular text. But nonetheless, we're going to begin here and study down through verse 21. And we want to see the contrast between God's love and man's loss as it relates to those who reject the message of the gospel. We all know verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought or produced or done in God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, this morning we turn to you 
We pray that you would, uh, would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning. That we, Lord, would receive your wisdom and your understanding of this passage today. Father, I pray for all who are here today, but I pray especially for those struggling through physical circumstances. Father, I pray that today we will stand upon the truth of your word and the very fact that we know that you are still a healer. We pray for your healing upon our people this day. I pray for the many who may be here today that are struggling in their walk with you, with you and they're here because you've brought them. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you begin to bring forth your wisdom and your truth to their hearts. To know that you love them with an everlasting love and you want them, Lord, to just turn their focus and attention back to you. Lord, we are ready to see you do great works in our lives. We pray for those who today may not know you and may have come, Lord, by invitation or in curiosity and yet are here because you've brought them to hear this one word, your love, your grace, and your mercy, how rich, how blessed, how important it is to our lives for eternity. Lord, may you, through your Spirit, change hearts today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Some of you may be old enough to remember contests that were announced on radio programs or or some TV programs that would require people to write a let's say a jingle or a or a poem or a very short essay about why they liked a certain product or program and one of the rules that was mentioned in these contests was in 25 words or less how many of you remember that statement in 25 words or less raise your hands high i'm blind Okay, good. That's all you old people. All right. In 25 words or less, it was, a, it was always something, you know, in 25 words or less, describe this or that, and then, you know, stick it in, a, in an envelope and put a five cent stamp on it and then send it and we'll, and we'll review it. And if you win, we'll, we'll send you something that's not very expensive, whatever. Anyway, that would, that, that would happen, you know, in 25 words or less. Well, I often wondered why the contest promoters or judges only wanted 25 words or less. Maybe they just wanted to know who was best at describing something succinctly or expressing in the fewest words a, a grand uh, or powerful statement full of meaning like that one great jingle of the past. You wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. <laughs> Does anybody remember Pepsodent, by the way, and the, and the jingle? More old people. Okay. <laughs> hey, by the way, that was 13 words. 13 words for that great little jingle. But the grandest statement, in all seriousness, the grandest statement ever written in the English language Translated, of course, from the Greek, is the text of John 3.16. Words that could not have been more perfectly written, purposely expressed in exactly 25 words. 
and describing the greatest gift ever given by the greatest one for the greatest need. In our last study of John chapter 3, I mentioned that in this text, we see the magnitude of God's love in that He gave His only begotten Son. We see the reach of God's love in that He gave it to a sinful world. We see the impartiality of God's love in that it is given to whomsoever believeth, Jew or Gentile. And we see the beneficial richness of God's love that is profoundly eternal life. But another way of of seeing the beauty of this verse is in this comparison that I want to share with you this morning. It begins with each little phrase of the verse, for God, for God, the greatest source, so loved, the greatest heart, the world, the greatest extent, that He gave the greatest sacrifice. His only begotten Son, the greatest gift. That whosoever, the greatest invitation, believeth in Him, the greatest terms, should not perish, the greatest deliverance, But the greatest difference between perishing and having everlasting life, which is the greatest promise given. Sometimes it's just too profound for words. And yet it is sad that the liberal theologian today, the one who questions the Word of God, the one who wonders whether there's any truth in the Bible, there'll be some truth, of course, but they don't really believe everything that's in it. The liberal theologian, along with those of the, uh, the leaders of the emerging or emergent church of today, These people have taken this one verse so out of context to mean that God actually has the planet in mind for saving, but not sinners. That's sad. Now let me give you an example of why I say this. Because for three days in February of of 2009 at uh, Northwestern Nazarene University in Nampa, Idaho, Brian McLaren, who's considered one of the leaders of the emerging church movement and sometimes often called the godfather of the emerging church movement, on, on, in that time and at that conference, he redefined Christianity. Now, now I, I need to ask you this question. Does anybody think that Christianity needs to be redefined? Uh, well, it, sh- it doesn't need to be redefined, does it? It's pretty clear from Genesis to Revelation. But he believes that Christianity needs to be redefined. And so he said in this conference, he said that the term the world in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, is not talking about spiritually lost people, but is talking about the earth. 
In other words, the ecosystem. And after he said this, they showed, the move, they showed a movie or a film by the Sierra Club. And if you're familiar with the Sierra Club, the Sierra Club is a, uh, mostly a, a national organization, probably international now, but it's a, 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 an environmental group about saving the planet, about green, you know, green everything. So what he says is that Jesus came to save and to die for the earth, to make it green. He then said that the term kingdom of God, this is what I mean by redefining. He then said that the kingdom of God is not a spiritual term or a religious term, but it is a political term and that it meant God's ecosystem or God's global love economy. That's redefining Christianity. And it's laughable, except that it's so sad. And tragic, actually. Because as we saw in our last study in in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus reminded Nicodemus about a story in the book of Numbers of sinfulness and rebellion against God by the children of Israel that brought about a, a punishment involving fiery serpents to inflict pain and eventually death for many. But it was also a story of God's grace as Moses interceded for the people and the Lord provided a remedy. And the remedy was this. He tells Moses, make a bronze serpent and stick it on a pole and, 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 and let that bronze serpent be lifted up high so that everyone would see it. And it wasn't that that bronze serpent was going to save anybody or heal anybody, but all he said was, and tell them if they will look at that serpent, I will heal them. The idea was to bring them to a point of faith and trust in God to look at the serpent. Just to turn and look at it. To trust God. And those that did were healed. The idea was That that bronze serpent was representing everything that had brought them to that place of sinfulness to rebel against God. And it was a reminder for the future that someone else would be lifted up on a cross to defeat sin and death and the enemy by dying on the cross as the pure and perfect Lamb of God. And this is why, you see, the bronze serpent was lifted up for all to see. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 14 of our text, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I want you to get the context. This isn't about saving the planet. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what's the context? The people had sinned. He said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth, whosoever, speaking of people, individuals, not a planet, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then comes what some people believe, 
and it's, it's possible that the next few verses are, are really a, a commentary by John of what Jesus has just stated to Nicodemus. But it could also be the words of Jesus himself to Nicodemus. Either way, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit to be given as the commentary for what has been given completely to Nicodemus in this meeting that he had with Jesus. And that is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Something in this text, something keeps cropping up in these two verses. You saw it in verse 16, For God so loved the world. And then in verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What keeps cropping up? There, there just seems to be something about the world, you see, that brings out the love and the compassion of God. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> this earth is a rebel planet. I'm not talking Star Wars kind of thing, you know. But it's a rebel planet. As John Phillips puts it, one that has gone astray. From the time of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, this planet, this world, this cosmos, because that's the word in in John 3.16 for the world, as well as in John 17, the cosmos has gone astray because of sin. And what do we have today? The world is a challenge to the character of God. The world today is a challenge to the holiness of God. The world today is a challenge to the love of God. And yet, God so loved the world. But when the only begotten Son of God stepped out of His throne that first time to come down to this earth, it was the love of God that Jesus came to reveal. He came to reveal the love of God. He came to save. He truly came to save, not to condemn. Certainly, we, the world as it were, deserve to be judged and condemned. We deserved it. We deserve to be judged. We deserve to be condemned. We are guilty both of breaking God's law and of coming short of His glory. This is what Paul tells us in a very simple verse in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All is a very big word here. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But not only were we guilty, but we've been convicted too. If you read earlier on in this particular chapter, going back to verse 10, Paul quoting from, from, from the Psalms, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. 
They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That is the reality of what we are being told in in Romans uh, 3.23 when it says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We were born in sin. The Bible teaches us that from the very beginning. After Adam and Eve fell in the garden in Genesis chapter 3.15, well, after uh, Genesis chapter 3, of course, 3.15 is the promise of the Messiah. But the point is, after all of that, anybody born into this world was born in sin. Born with the understanding that you will live a certain amount of time and then you will die. Before that, death was not a part of the garden. Death was not a part of the life that God had given. However, Christ was not sent to condemn or to judge us. Judgment and condemnation were not His purpose. He was sent to save us. His purpose was to save us from perishing and to save us unto eternal life. That was His purpose. That was His mission. And we're going to talk about mission here in just a moment. The emerging church likes to talk about missional things. But there's one very important mission that we don't want to neglect. That was the mission of Messiah. But the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, he says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. You see, we are, we're having to deal with and, 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 and certainly come to grips with this issue of perishing and not perishing. To those that are perishing, the cross is foolishness. They don't understand it. Some don't want to understand it, but others would, would actually question, who would want to die for the, for the sins of men? Why would he even want to do that? Why would anybody want to do that? It's foolish. But unto us which are saved, that cross is the power of God. And I'm here to ask you this question, where is the cross today in the church? Where is the cross today? In, in many churches today, we don't, we don't want to go that way, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to offend people. The cross is an offense, isn't it? It's a stumbling block, Jesus said. But nonetheless, without it, we have no salvation. We have no hope for salvation. The cross is a serious thing because it it involves death. But without death, there cannot be life. The kind of life that God wants to give. But we're always so worried about stepping on toes. Man, step on my toes so I don't have to go to hell. You understand that? Well, getting back to verse verse 16 of our text, a very significant word is used there. It is the word sent. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The word sent is the word in the Greek, apostello, from which we get and derive our word apostle. 
And it carries with it the idea of sending someone forth as a messenger on a mission. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But the word send there is saying that He was sent with a mission. He was sent as a messenger on a mission. But we have to say this. Jesus was no ordinary messenger on a mission, was He? He was no ordinary messenger and representative of God's throne. It takes all four Gospels and all 21 epistles to reveal what a perfect representative Jesus was of the Father. No ordinary messenger. And yet, He was on a mission. If any of us are placed on missions, whether in the military or otherwise, we are bound to finish that mission. You remember Mission Impossible? Nah, not the movies, you know, that's the old one on TV, you know. Here we go, the oldies again. You know, all that good stuff. Then there was a little recording on an airplane, you know, hidden in your lunchbox. Mr. Phelps, this is the mission. If you choose to accept it, blah, 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 this and that. Well, the whole idea was when you, when you accepted the mission, you accepted it to finish it, to complete the mission. And Jesus came to complete a mission. Jesus even talks about it. An important mission. One that if He does not complete it, we're in trouble. But He bears the, this, this mission out for us. In Matthew 20, verse 28, He says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom... For many, that gives us certainly a, a good picture of what the mission of Jesus was. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve and to give his life, which means he came to die as a ransom for many. Consider yourself right now as one that has been bought back to God by this ransom. Is that a serious thing to you? I hope it is. Because we cannot take the things of God lightly here. We cannot take the issues of sin lightly. Because God did not take sin lightly if He sent His only Son to die on a cross on behalf of everyone on this earth. Jesus in Luke 19 verse 10 said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's another part of that mission. He came to seek and to save. Not just to seek, but to save that which was lost. And so there, there is a means of salvation. There is the means for eternal life. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. That's it. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's not Jesus Christ plus Something or some ideal or some religion or some cult. It's Jesus and Him alone. The only one that came with that mission. The only one that could fulfill that mission because of who He was. The only begotten Son of God. God the Son. The Son of God.
There are many, many verses. We could spend a long time looking at many of them, but let's just look at a few of them. Paul, for example, in in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Notice, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. His mission... And the only one with a mission. The only one. In the next chapter, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And we have to understand the uh, the enormity of the word man there. It is important that Paul says the man Christ Jesus because when Jesus came to this earth, he put on himself flesh. He was a hundred percent man, but he was a hundred percent God as well. You do believe that, right? Because that's what the Bible says and teaches us. All right, good. But the greatest testimony comes from the lips of Jesus himself when he said in John 14 6 I am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me there's no other way there's no one else it was Jesus the one on the mission to complete the mission on behalf of those of this world who are sinners But now the question needs to be asked. And it is a sobering question because of the context of the rest of, the, of this passage that we're looking at today. The question is, whom does Jesus condemn? Whom does Jesus condemn? Because we read in verses 18 and 19, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And by the way, uh, and I, I didn't mention this in the other uh, uh, services, but, but let me mention it here now and I'll remind them hopefully later. But that last phrase, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, is, is saying he has not believed, the unbeliever has not believed in the authority of the only begotten Son of God. And we'll see how that uh, works out in, in, in the rest of our study here today. So he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name and authority of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now, maybe the question we should ask in transitioning between verse 17 and verses 18 and 19 is this, why didn't God condemn us? Why didn't God condemn us? Well, it's a real simple answer. The fact is, we were already condemned, as we previously stated. You remember where? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. We were condemned already. Remember now what Paul has taught us, for example, in the book of Ephesians, that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alive physically, but we were dead spiritually. So remember that. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Jesus came to give us life and to offer peace and love and joy and the goodness and and glory of God's grace. This is what He came to offer. That is why it's so significant that it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now I know that that leads to the cross, but everything between the giving and the cross is the giving of all of these things, of giving us a picture of God's love, God's life, God's peace, God's joy, that He wants to give those who would believe in Him. But to those who rejected, to those who snubbed, to those who spurned, all of that, the product of Christ's coming was, is, and will be inevitably judgment. In other words, he didn't come to condemn, but if he is not received, the product of not receiving is judgment. I'll explain that here in just a moment. Because if you look at verse 18 again, we see two classes of people mentioned. Now, I say that because a lot of times we mention the importance of seeing that the Bible teaches that there are really only two races of people. <laughs> There's the Jews and the Gentiles. That's it. There may be a lot of sub-ethnic groups, whatever, but in reality, you're either Jewish or you're a Gentile. That's it. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's reality. But here, on the, on the issue of Receiving the Lord and understanding what happens when we receive the truth of the, of the gospel. There are two classes of people. One class is this. He that believeth in him is not condemned or judged. That's one group of people. And secondly, he that believeth not is condemned already or is judged already. That's another class. That's it. There's nothing in between. But this isn't the judgment of a random, subjective illogical, arbitrary sentence, but the inevitable working out of an absolute law for the person rejecting Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, consider, if you will, a person who has a disease or an illness that a few injections can cure or maybe some kind of medication can cure but who refuses to take the injections or the medications and consequently dies of their disease. They have no one to blame but themselves. I'm I'm not trying to make this a very complicated thing, so I'm just dealing with it in a very simple way. So in fact, the remedy was spurned. The remedy was rejected. The remedy was snubbed. What came forth was the working out of law, the law of cause and effect. When we look at this in light of eternity, Christ offers life. Man in some cases, in many cases, chooses death. But Christ offers life. From the very beginning, 
This was God's message. First to his people, but to all. He says there are blessings and cursings. Which way will you go? His encouragement to them was choose life. Choose life. Many people will come to a place of regret because they did not choose life. They chose to follow their own whims, their own ways, their own feelings and emotions rather than realize that what Jesus came to give us was eternal life and blessing with God. To the one who believes, Jesus has made it clear, so clear that Paul would write this in Romans 8 verse 1. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, there's an operable word here. It is the word now. There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation. But Jesus even more clarifies that very thought in this statement in John 5.24 when Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word. Now notice what, he, what he's saying. He that heareth my word and believeth on me, or on him, I should say, that sent me, that believeth on him that sent me, has, has clearly, presently, now, everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Do you see what Jesus has done here? He has broken it down so clearly, so precisely, and so simply, that you can't misunderstand this, and you can't misinterpret it. Jesus said, if you hear my word, and you believe on him that sent me, you believe the Father who sent me, you will have everlasting life. So, first thing is, you'll have everlasting life, which is a long time life, right? I mean, it's, it's a long time. How long is he everlasting? That's a long time, isn't it? Alright, so you have everlasting life. And then secondly, you shall not come into condemnation. That's another blessing, another level of blessing here. But then he says this, but just to make it clear, you've passed from death into life. Because in this life, you know, you can live, but then you die. Without me, you will, you will be, you, you will be dead, you'll, you'll live in your spirit, but you'll be separated from me. In other words, you'll, you'll perish. But you have life, you've come to no condemnation, and you've passed from death to life. What a benefit that he's saying, and that he's giving us. So now the question is, why is the unbeliever condemned? Why is the unbeliever condemned? Simply, the unbeliever has not believed. The unbeliever has not trusted in the Word of God, has not trusted the Gospel of Jesus Christ, has not trusted Jesus Himself, has not trusted the work of Jesus on the cross, has not trusted the work of Jesus by shedding His blood for the forgiveness of men's sins, has not trusted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The great sin of unbelief. And if you're taking notes, don't miss this. Get your pencils ready, in other words. The great sin of unbelief 
is that it neglects. I'll give you time to write neglect. Do it quick. The great sin of unbelief is that it neglects. It ignores. It denies. It abuses. And it rejects God's Son. Unbelief neglects, ignores, denies, abuses, and rejects God's Son. And so, the dignity of God's Son is ignored. The dignity of God's Son is ignored. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, all ignored. The truth of God's Son is not believed. The goodness of God's Son is not embraced. The dearest thing to God's heart is denied. The dearest thing to God's heart for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The dearest thing to his heart is denied. The name Yeshua, the name that is above every name is abused. It is cursed by so many today. And hence the only begotten Son of God is rejected. And Jesus would later say this in John 8:24, listen, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Why are we playing with God? Why do we play with His Word? Because when we do that, we mark ourselves as unbelievers. Simply. The unbeliever is condemned because light has come into the world. The light came into the world to give light to men, to enable men to walk out of the darkness of a sinful and perishing world. The light came to show men the way, the truth, and the life because He is the light. He is the light. And so when we see verse 19 of our text, it says, And this is the condemnation. 
that light come into the world. Light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It is important to understand that here is the process of condemning, not the sentence of it. This is the process of condemning, not the sentence of it. You see, sinners not only live in darkness, but love it and refuse to come to the light where their sins will be exposed and can be forgiven. I think sometimes we leave that step out. Sins will be exposed, but the fact of the matter is when we allow the light to shine and expose it, what do we do? We cry for God's mercy. And in the exposing of it, God takes care of it. He covers that sin with what? The blood of Jesus Christ. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, there's no remission, no forgiveness of sin. The unbeliever is uncomfortable in the light. Therefore, they shun everything. Everything that presents the light of the glory of Christ to them, they shun it. They turn away from it. They shun the church. And may I say the true church of Jesus Christ, where the Bible is taught, where the Bible is believed, where the Bible is preached, where the cross is preached, where the cross is lifted up. They shun the believers, the true believers, the ones who truly believe in what the Word of God says. They want to talk to us. They'll talk to any compromiser, but they won't talk to us. They shun the Scriptures. They don't really want to read the Word of God. Maybe various small portions of it, but not everything that the Word of God says, because then that's the light that condemns. They shun prayer. They don't want to... They don't want to say that they believe in God, therefore they don't want to talk to God, so they don't pray. Except when they get into really bad trouble, and then they look up one of us, and they say, will you pray for us? And of course we're going to pray for them, because we want them to come to Jesus. And they shun spiritual and biblical conversation. They'd rather talk about everything else but Jesus. They'd rather talk about anything else but heaven and God and righteousness and goodness and what is right and so it says in verses 20 and 21 for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved but he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought or done in God now note that unbelievers are said to hate the light unbelievers hate the light They ignore, reject, deny, and they fight the light. They speak and they write against it. They ridicule it. They curse it. They persecute it. They seek to stamp it out. They hate the light. I know that I've often used this particular illustration in times past, but some of you can relate. You know, here we live in El Paso and years and years and years ago when there really wasn't any what, what you'd call refrigerated air we always either had swamp coolers but sometimes they didn't work and it was you know in the summertime like we are now and, and at night you know we'd go to bed and everybody's sweating and we have the windows and the screens you know and uh, trying to have air come through the house and whatnot. and so you get so hot you know in the middle of the night you want to get up and go get a cold drink of water so you go to the kitchen and stumble over tables and stuff you turn on the light in the kitchen and all of a sudden all these cucarachas run to find cover because they hate the light 
I know it's a mundane example, but hey, that's the truth, man. You turn the light on, those cucarachas, man, they're looking for a... By the way, that's a cockroach, you know, cockroaches. For those who might not know, you know. But they hate the light. And how interesting that the Lord uses that very same example of those who are unbelievers. They, they hate the light. We, we need to understand this, this thought that, 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 that the Lord has brought us to on, on, on this day as we look at this passage. If we go back to John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 for a moment, it says in Him was life, in, in the Logos, in, in the Word, which is Jesus. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light that comes out of Jesus, because the Bible says, and we'll see it in a moment, that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But, but the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. From the very beginning, sinful man, unbelieving man, has not understood the light. Could not and would not understand or comprehend it. But Jesus emphasizes this one thing. Now listen carefully to these verses. Jesus says this in John 8 verse 12. He says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in... Thank you. The other two services, they they didn't know how to talk. He that followeth me shall not walk in. Shall not walk in. All right, boy. But shall have the light of life. I'm just emphasizing now what Jesus is saying here. He's the light of the world, and he that follows him will not walk in darkness. But shall have the light of life. Now go to chapter 12, John 12 verse 35. Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not where he goes. What is Jesus providing for us? Light so that we can know where we're going. Go down a few more verses in that same chapter. In verse 46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Abiding is the key word. Living in, dwelling in darkness. We are not, as Paul taught us in his letters to the Thessalonians, we are not in darkness. We are children of the light are you a believer in Jesus Christ then you're a child of the light not of darkness so when we read these last statements here before the next section of John 3 it says he that doeth the truth cometh to the light now let me explain this doesn't mean that a man lives perfectly and without ever sinning what it does mean is that a person directs their life toward truth every day we direct our lives toward the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God diligently seeking the truth on on a daily basis to walk in the light as he is in the light and though we may at times slip at at times we, we, we falter sometimes we fall flat on our faces we immediately turn back to God why? because of the presence of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin you all understand conviction if you're a believer and you've, you've taken a stumble from time to time, you know what conviction is. 
The Holy Spirit, man, doesn't let you go. He doesn't want you to get to a place where you say, Oh, this is just, you know, something, you know, I'll I'll probably do it all the time. No, God says, No, I don't want you to do it at all. So I'm helping you here. Convicts us, you see. Not condemns, convicts. Believers are convicted, but not condemned. Got it? All right, so we may at times slip, but we come back to God how? In repentance and integrity. Now, I mentioned those two things for, for a reason. Some people will, will criticize me for saying, well, you know, we're, we're, already, you know, we're already saved. You, know, we don't have to, you don't have to ask forgiveness anymore. But I want to. I'm making a, I'm making a statement to the Lord. Say, you know, Lord, I, I messed up, but I don't want to mess up no more. That's bad English, I know, but I don't want to mess up anymore. I want to live by your word. That's the integrity part of it all. He's holding us back together again. Because when we fell, we kind of spread ourselves out too thin of doing all kinds of other things. He holds us back together. Well, let's consider this as we close with this passage. John, the apostle, who gave us the gospel of John that we're studying, would later in his life write letters to the church. And of course, later on, even beyond that, would write the book of Revelation. God would keep him around long enough to do that. But it, later in his life, he would, he would write these letters to the church as a very mature and, and well-experienced apostle. And he would, he would share these words. And, and this is early on in the letter. So in First John chapter 1, verse, verse 5, he says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The very same theme, the very same issue that Jesus was talking about. Light. He says, God is light. And in him is no, no darkness at all. And then John uses a a, a literary, Greek literary technique here that I'm not going to go into great detail, detail to talk about. But then he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So there's a contrast here to the first statement that was done in a way that encourages our hearts. But then he says this. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we say, you know, yeah, I'm a believer, I love the Lord and do this, but we're walking in darkness. In other words, we're, we're kind of in the shadows and walking in and doing what we want to do whenever we want to do it. He says, you're lying. And you do that the truth. Then he comes back to the other part of the of the equation. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ's son cleanses us from all sin. And what he does here is he brings us back to the cross. He brings us back to what Jesus came to do on our behalf. So he says, now, if we have fellowship, uh, we will have fellowship one with, one with another if we're in the light uh, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, cleanses in a present tense, cleanses us from all sin. Then he takes that one step again and into, the, into the contrast and he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
And then he clarifies and says, if we confess our sins. There's the honesty of repentance and integrity. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once again, he brings us back to the cross. I'm almost done. The flautas will wait. Let me just share this story and we'll close. Henry Morehouse, an English preacher of the late 19th century and was considered a mentor for D.L. Moody, the great English preacher who also preached in the United States, one of the greatest preachers ever, was invited by Moody to preach for him for a week because Moody had an emergency to go to and, and so he had his mentor, Henry Moore, uh, Morehouse, to speak. And in that whole week of preaching, in other words, they, they would have meetings from Monday through Sunday. And in that whole week of meetings, he, he preached on one text, John 3.16. Every meeting, he preached a message on John 3.16. Not even the same message. He preached messages on John 3.16. And one of the things that Henry Morehouse said was this. He said, I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you. Suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder. Suppose I could ascend that shining stairway until my feet stood on the sapphire pavements of the city of God. Suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel who stands in the presence of God. Suppose I could, could say, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? I, I know what he would say. He would say, Henry Morehouse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves the world. And toward the end of that week, D.L. Moody came back to be there to hear a couple of the, the sermons and, uh, of, of Morehouse and John th- on John 3.16. And he saw numbers of people come to Christ after the preaching. And he confided to a friend in these words. He said, I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out. I could not keep back the tears. I just drank it in. So did the crowded congregation. I tell you, there is one thing that draws above everything else in the world, and that is God's love. For God so loved the world. God so loved you and me that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I I pray with all my heart that you are here today knowing already this truth in your life. Knowing it, living it, believing it, trusting the Lord in it. But if not... My heart goes out to you. Because you have a decision to make. You have a decision to make about life and death. 
about trusting or not trusting, about light or darkness. No one can make that decision for you. You have to make it. We're all brought to that place in our lives. I'm thankful for the men who prayed for me 45 years ago for me to come to know the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that you take into consideration the people that are praying for you and you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord. I pray for the many of you today that the Lord has brought here because you have struggled with your life. You've struggled with the world. You've struggled because the enemy is confounding you and confusing you and, and causing all kinds of chaos in you because you know what the truth is, but, but, but you're being pulled and you're compromising. Right now, God says, quit compromising. You come to me. I'm still here. You'll understand that. He loves you that much. He's not giving up on you. Don't give up on him. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's stand and let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven. We thank you for the privilege that you've given us to hear your word, to see in your word the heart of a loving God and of a loving Savior. Lord, I pray that as we stand here today before you in prayer that you give opportunity to every heart Lord who will say they want to come to Jesus this very moment anyone who has never come anyone who, who came and has wandered away and would like to come back Father through the power of your Holy Spirit give them the opportunity to signify that desire and that decision today And Lord, move mightily upon them. Fill their hearts, Lord God, with a wonder. The wonder of knowing something that they've never known before. Your presence, your love, your grace, your mercy, your peace in Jesus Christ. Father, have your way with each and every one of us here. I pray, Father, that you... Pour out your spirit on each one who needs to speak the words that say, Lord, have mercy on me. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. I believe in my heart that he is risen from the dead. Lord, change us. Mold us, make us, Lord, into the image of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.